Christmas to you all. On your bulletin, it says Matthew 1, um, but we're going to actually focus on Luke 1 this morning, starting at verse 26. And we'll mention, or we'll read from Matthew 1 later in the, the message, but we're going to focus on Luke chapter 1. But before we open our Bible to that passage of Scripture, we recognize for the last few weeks we've been focused on the genealogy of Jesus, which is a genealogy filled with people who have made mistakes. They are people with rough past ancestors who we wouldn't normally brag about. And when it comes down to our family connection, we focused on the genealogy of Jesus, the women uh, within the genealogy, and how God used them despite their flaws. We opened the series with Tamar, and then the next week we talked about Rahab, and then last week we talked about Bathsheba. And God has used every woman's story within this genealogy to get us to where we are in this series today. So as we bring this series to a close, we're going to do so by focusing on the life of Mary. When you look at the life of Mary, there are a few lessons that we can learn. And so it actually brings me to my first point this morning is that everyone is valuable to God. That's the first lesson I want us to understand this morning. Everyone is valuable to God. No matter what time period a person has lived in, no matter what time period or era, the world has always tried to determine someone's value and their worth based on statuses and ranks. If you make a certain amount of money, you reached a certain level. If you gained a certain amount of popularity or influence, you reached a certain level. And even if you lacked thereof, if you lack certain worldly pleasures, you are on a certain level. So these levels, they separate people and they define their importance and their value in this world. And so that's why there's people that are mistreated and even bullied in schools and in the workplace because they may lack popularity or influence. There are people that can be harassed because their funds limit them from gaining access to certain worldly pleasures that may keep them trendy. People are living in this world feeling insignificant. They're feeling overlooked. They're feeling unimportant. They're not feeling valued. But based on the life of Mary, we can learn that everyone is valuable to God. How do we know this? Going to Luke, and I encourage you to open your Bibles. And I would actually encourage you, if you're here for the first time and um, you don't have a Bible, take one home. We have some in the pew, so please feel free to take one home with you. But open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 26. We're going to read the first few verses of this morning's reading. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel was sent to Nazareth. I want to focus on that because Nazareth was what we would consider a no-name city. No one cared about Nazareth. In fact, when Jesus began his ministry and he began choosing his disciples, Nathaniel, one of the disciples that he chose, found out he was from Nazareth and he asked the question in John chapter 1 verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was a very small community about north of Jerusalem and was probably around with 500 people living there during the time of Jesus. And so because it was so small, it was nowhere near any major cities, it was the last place anybody would expect something interesting to happen. And so when you were called a Nazarene back then, 
It was no different than being called a bumpkin or a hillbilly today. And so when Nathaniel asked this question, it's, it goes beyond sarcasm, but it represents the mindset that people had of Nazareth back then. People assumed that Nazareth couldn't produce much. Nothing could come out of Nazareth, let alone the promised Messiah. So this is where Mary comes from. She comes from a small community of people from an area that's overlooked. And so most people, finding this out, most people would have expected God to choose a young woman from Jerusalem because that's, that's the city of worship and, and holiness. People would have expected God to choose a young woman from Rome, the city of power and authority. They would have expected the Messiah to be born of parents of great wealth and impact and influence in the community, a city official, a priest who can stand in the presence of God in the temple, a Pharisee, someone with religious influence in the community. Nazareth was a no-name area. Mary's family were no-name people. This would be the last place anybody would expect. That's the mindset of the world back then, and it's the mindset of the people that live in this world today. We look at the outward appearance, and we base their worth and their value on that. We look at what they bring to the table or what they possess, and we judge them based on what we see. Apparently, this is a problem that people have had for years, especially the Jews. You look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, or 1 Samuel, all throughout 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel, they, they wanted a king, just like all the other nations. And God said, I'm your king. But they wanted a king that they could physically see and touch and feel. They wanted a king that had this, this look of intimidation when he walked in a room. Come to find out, the Bible says there was a man named Saul who was taller than everyone in the room. And the Bible specifically says he was handsome. One thing you need to learn about scripture is when it says something specific, it means it. When the Bible takes time to point something out, that means it is serious. The Bible says he was handsome. Then the Bible goes on and says, and no one else was as handsome as Saul in the land. So that means every jaw dropped when Saul walked in. Saul walks in the room, and people are mind blown. He's handsome. He has the look that everyone is going for and they're looking for. And so he's anointed as the first king of Israel, but he leads the people so poorly that God rejects him. And then God sends the prophet Samuel to another house, Jesse in Bethlehem. Jesse, who has several sons. Jesse finds out this prophet is coming and he lines all his sons up preparing to be the anointed as the next king. And Samuel looks at the oldest because all his sons were strong and they were sturdy. And he looks at the oldest son and says, surely that's the God. Takes his horn of oil and he's ready to anoint him. But God says, stop, that's not him. Because he might have the look, but he doesn't have the heart. God looks beyond the outer appearance and sees the heart. And so Samuel goes down the line and he keeps doing, he's trying to anoint these people because they look, they have this look. They have everything that the world would expect a king to have. And God is saying, nope, 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 no way. And eventually he runs out of sons and he says, is this it? Is this all the sons you have? Come to find out all the sons had to look except one. Jesse brought in all the sons that he thought were significant. Not all the sons that he had. And so he brings in all these significant sons and finds out there's one still left out in the field. And he says, bring that one in. 
Matter of fact, nobody leave, don't eat, don't do anything. Don't blow your nose, don't do anything until this guy comes in. So he brings David in the house. David comes in the house and immediately the Lord says, that's him. That's the next king. Because he may not have the look. Bible says that he was little. And that word little means he was insignificant to the family. But God said, that's the king. Because he has the heart. God goes beyond the appearance and the worldly possessions. And the same way God chose that young man, David, to be the king is the same way God chose his insignificant woman, Mary. And the same way God chose this insignificant woman, Mary, is the same way God has chosen you. In verse 27, the virgin's name is Mary. The Bible says her name is Mary. Why is that important? Because she's insignificant. As the world would say, but yet God knew her by name. The Bible says her name is Mary. God knew her family upbringing. God knew that she came from a poor family. God knew that she was young. She was very young. During that time, a young woman was saw as mature and ready to have children in their teenage years. In their teenage years. So Mary was a teenager called by God. Everything about Mary seems like she's disqualified to be the mother of the Messiah. But though the world may try to determine our worth based on what we have and our influence in the community and who we are, God chooses us for his glory. So despite what we have and who we are or who we're related to, God chooses his glory over what this world offers. Another reason why it's important to know that everyone is valuable to God is because At the end of the day, all of us are made in the image of God. Everybody is valuable to God because we're all made in his image. Every person on the planet, whether you are saved or unsaved, we're all made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, it tells us that God took the dew of the morning and the dust of the earth, mixed them together, and he made man, breathed into his nostrils. Man became a living soul. So that means every person in existence is made from dust. It's very dusty in this room this morning. There's a lot of dust in this room. This world is full of dust. It's tall dust, short dust, educated dust, Pentecostal dust, Baptist dust. There's dust that are married and dust with children. We're all dust. And because we're all dust, we can't look down on one another. Because I'm just as dusty as you are. And you're just as dusty as I am. All of us were made from dust. All of us are valuable to God. As we move forward in this passage, I want to make a side note. Going back to this angelic encounter. It reminds us that angels are real. Angels are real. And I bring this up because it may give us a better visual of what Mary's encountering. Angels are real. So I want to read again, verse 26 on down. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I want to spend time just talking about angels for a little bit. 
based on scripture. So the first thing that we can learn from this is angels remind us that the unseen world is real. Angels remind us that we're not the only ones in existence. There is there are spiritual unseen forces, good and evil all around us that are in constant battle over the people of God and the fulfillment of God's will taking place in the earth. Angels are ministering spirits with a mission, according to Hebrews 1. There's ranks of angels. And I know there's scholars that try to make this hierarchical system, but a lot of it doesn't line up with Scripture, so we just stick with what we know. There's angels, and then there's archangels. Michael is the archangel, the leader of uh, the angelic military. Gabriel is the messenger angel, all things messianic. Their influence is not restricted to just one generation, one time. But God has used them from Genesis all the way to Revelation. They're created beings with limited knowledge, which means they don't know as much as God. But they have wills. But their will is subject to the will of God. They're sent by God to help believers. They're not to be prayed to or worshipped to because their desire and they are made to serve the Lord alone. They're entirely different from humans because they may be able to take the form of humans, but they can't become humans. And humans do not become angels when they die. Can I say that again? Because I want to make sure we understand our grandparents and, our, and celebrities are not looking down on us with wings. Okay. The last thing about angels is they are instruments of God's judgment. They're strong. They're powerful. The Bible says in 2 Kings 19, the nation of Assyria was trying to take over Israel. They wanted to harm them. They wanted to kill them. And the Bible says God sent one angel to single-handedly slaughter 185,000 Assyrians at one time. These are the angels that Mary read about in Scripture. So when an angel stands in front of her, this is probably one of the most, if not the most, frightening experiences of her life. When an angel shows up, it shows up in raw form, and when it shows up in raw form, it brings terror to the heart of anyone that encounters them. When an angel appeared to Mary, it says the angel appeared to her, which means it appeared to her as he was. As he was. So these the angels are not these weak, frail-looking men with red cheeks and manicured hands. They're not these babies that play tag and duck duck goose while flying naked in the clouds. That's what we have these, that's what we think angels are. These are not, that's not what angels are. Angels appear in raw form as strong, powerful beings with a piercing presence. So when Mary saw this angel, she was probably trying not to panic. Another reason why. This is such a big deal is because of the timing in which the angel appeared. Right before the time of Mary, God hadn't spoken to his people in over 400 years, known as the era and the period of silence. There was no angel that had appeared to anyone in 400 years. So when Mary sees an angel, the first thing going on in her mind, based on what she's read in scripture, and the fact that no angel has appeared in 400 years, first thing that's probably going on in her mind is she's about to be judged. She's about to be judged. I can imagine when that angel shows up, she's just thinking about all the stuff she did wrong, all the time she sped on her way to work, 
All the time she lied and ate the last dessert and blamed it on her sibling. She's a teenager. She's probably thinking about all the stuff she did wrong because the presence of an angel is here. So she thinks she's about to be judged. And that tells us the fact that she was trembling and the angel had to tell her not to be afraid. It tells us that when an angel appears, it not only brings fear, but it can bring conviction. When an angel appears because they stand before it in the presence of a holy and righteous God every day, all day. So when they appear, we are seeing the reflection of God's holiness and God's righteousness. And it causes us to examine ourselves. Mary, knowing the scripture, I believe that this was a moment where she was reminded that God is still holy. God is still righteous. God is all powerful, which is the next lesson that we can learn from Mary's life. God is all powerful. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 says, And behold, this is what the angel's telling Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary is told she's going to have a son. Mary hears the word of the Lord, and it makes no sense. It makes no sense. It feels good. Her heartstrings might be pulled. That's something we need to understand about the word of God, and I've said this several times. There are some things about God's word that might pull our heart and our emotions, but it doesn't make sense intellectually. Creation pulls our heartstrings and to hear that God took the dust and formed us makes us feel good because he wants intimacy with us but it doesn't make sense in the mind doesn't make sense how the Red Sea stood like walls doesn't make sense how Samson single-handedly defeated a thousand Philistines with nothing but the donkey's jawbone but at the end of the day this is where our faith is stretched there are some things about God's word we cannot explain. And so I want to take this time to encourage you to be okay with not knowing. It is okay not to know. It is okay to say, I don't know. When it comes down to certain things, there are things that God will make sure we don't know because it's in his hidden will. That's where our faith has to be stretched. Mary hears the word of God. And says, how can this be? Because she's a virgin. Gabriel's response to everything. With God, nothing is impossible. Simple as that. How did God create the world in seven days? I have no idea, but with God, nothing is impossible. How did God make the sea stand up like walls? I don't know, but with God, nothing is impossible. Some of us feel like Mary. 
Some of us may feel like Mary in our lives. We look at our age, we look at our upbringing, we look at our level of influence and popularity, and we think there's no way God could use someone like us. There's some of us like Mary in this season. We may feel the urge to call someone who hurt us and forgive them, but it seems impossible to move on. But the Bible says, with God, nothing is impossible. This is the season where families gather together. People that don't like each other have to sit in the same room. And we don't understand how in the world am I going to sit and talk with this person after what they've done to me with God. Nothing is impossible. It seems impossible to live out what we profess because our everyday work environment is contrary to scripture. How am I supposed to continue living out what I preach but with God? Nothing is impossible. It seems impossible to overcome certain temptations and break free from certain addictions with God. Nothing is impossible. So Mary asked this question, how is this possible? And the angel responds not only by saying with God nothing is impossible, but then he says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. So now we see the power of the Holy Spirit. The life of Mary reveals the power of the Holy Spirit. It reveals the need for the Holy Spirit. When a believer surrenders their lives to Jesus, makes him Lord of their lives, the Spirit of God dwells in them. However, though the Spirit of God may dwell in a believer, sometimes our flesh still wants to run our lives. Our flesh still wants to do what it wants to do. And so we need to not only pray that the Holy Spirit would dwell in us. So we need to thank God that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But then we need to just pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us. You can have the Holy Spirit living in you, but we need to pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit. There's, that, this explains the common phrase, when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he's the resident. But when the Holy Spirit fills us, he's the president. When the Holy Spirit Fills us, and when he's the president of our life, he runs everything. We are in total submission and in total surrender to him with our lives. So, if you want to live out what you profess outside of the four walls of this church, we need to ask the Holy Spirit, fill us again. If we want to overcome certain addictions and certain temptations, we need to ask the Holy Spirit, fill us again. If you want to forgive the person that hurt you, ask the Holy Spirit, fill me so that the impossible can be done. It's impossible to love your enemies without being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to endure hardship without the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live for Jesus without the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and the impossible took place. We need the Holy Spirit, especially in this season. The Holy Spirit brings order and structure in the midst of confusion. He brings life to a dying ministry or vision. He brings strength to those that are weak and worn from the pressures of this life. God, the Holy Spirit, is all-powerful. Mary hears this news that she'll be pregnant with the Messiah and then gives a response that we can all learn from. Which brings me to the next point. God honors humility. 
God honors humility. The angel tells her, and I'm going to read verses 31 through 33 again, but the angel tells her she is highly favored and has been chosen by God to bring forth the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read verse 31 through 33. It says, and behold, this is what the angel says again, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him, give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You know that the Messiah was anticipated by the Jews for hundreds and thousands of years. This is something they've been looking forward to for centuries. Did you know that there were young women that prayed every day that they would be the ones that be chosen? There were people that were praying all the time. That was part of their prayer. Lord, make us in the family. Bring us in the family. Let us be the one that's the parent. Let my child be the, door, the, the, the mother of the Messiah. Let me be the grandparent of the Messiah. They were pa parents praying that their children, that their daughters would be the one. Thousands of years this was going on. But Mary is chosen. Do you know how prideful and arrogant she could have been with this? Do you know, she's a teenage girl hearing this. Do you know what she could have done with this? Knowing scripture all her life and she finds out that she's the girl she read about. She's the girl that she was taught about. Can you imagine how arrogant she would be? And the angel comes to her and says, you will have a son. But the angel starts off by saying, you are highly favored. The average person would have been like, you know, I, I do try. <laughs> you know, can I call you Gabe? I've been telling these people this for years, Gabe. I just, most people would take this and run with it. She knew the scripture. She knew what Isaiah said. She gets the news knowing that she's the one that she's learned about and been taught about all her life. This is the moment for any person to boast, but I want you to see something in verse 38. This is Mary's response when she finds out something that most women would, or most people would boast about. She said, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed. This is a response of complete submission. She says, I am your servant. That word servant is in reference to a slave. There's a difference between a servant and a slave. A servant is compensated for their work. A servant has the right. They can come and go as they please, as often as they want. But a slave has no rights. A slave has no rights. They are the property of their master. This is what Mary says she is to God. I am your servant. She says, I'm not just your servant, but I am a slave to your will. Mary says, I'm a slave, I'm a woman with absolutely no rights, completely owned by my master. Whatever you say will be done for my life is where I'll go and what I'll do. When you skip down to verse 48, you'll see Mary's prayer. And I encourage you to read that whole prayer. I'm going to just read a few verses. But she recognized where her family fits in society in this prayer. At verse 48, she says... For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
Those words, humble estate, this is her prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. Those words, humble estate, is in reference to someone who is considered lower class. Humble estate. So Mary knows she's poor. She knows that she's from an area that no one knows about or cares about, a family with no influence in the community, yet God shows her. So Mary is now humbled, and she's honored, and she's mind-blown that God shows someone like her. She doesn't see this as God, or she doesn't see her receiving this as her doing God a favor. She doesn't see this as her big break. She sees this as an opportunity to serve and boast in the Lord. It wasn't a moment to brag on who she is, but it was a moment to give glory to God who sees all and knows all. That's the heart of a humble servant. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Then she says, for behold, for now all generations will call me blessed. In other words, for centuries, people are going to look back at this day and say, look at what God has done. Now, there are some churches, some denominations that look at this and say, look at what Mary has done. We need to pray to her. We need to worship her. Look at what Mary has done. But Mary would disagree with the Catholic church. Mary would disagree. Mary would say, no, 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 no. Look at what God has done. People are going to look back at this and glorify God. This is the crazy thing about this. Do you know the type of ridicule that Mary might receive? An angel, again, hasn't appeared in 400 years. Now suddenly, suddenly out the blue, an angel appears to a no-name, insignificant place to tell some girl like Mary that she's going to be pregnant with the Messiah. And to make matters worse, she's engaged. She's engaged. You, not many people are going to believe this. Not many people are going to believe this. You know what this looks like? It looks like Mary stepped out of her relationship. And, or, or it looks like her and Joseph messing around before marriage. And, and, and during this time, the Jews took that very seriously. These sins could lead to persecution and even death. This is how Mary looks right now. It looks like she's walking in disobedience. It looks like she's walking in rebellion. She knows what could happen to her. And she still rejoices, knowing that she could face death for this. And she still praises God because she knows that at the end of the day, this is the will of God for my life, so it has to work out somehow. It has to work. It may look messy now, but it has to make sense somehow. This is what authentic faith looks like. That's what the life of Mary teaches. Another thing the life of Mary teaches is that community is important. Community is important. I stated earlier before the life of Mary, hadn't been an angel appearing in 400 years, 400 years of silence. God didn't speak. There were no angels. There were no prophetic revelations. There were no miracles. Nothing. 400 years of silence. And after 400 years, God sends this angel to Gabriel or sends the angel Gabriel to Mary. But six months before that, that was actually the second encounter. Six months before the angel came to Mary, God sent him to Jerusalem, sent him to Jerusalem 
to a priest working in the temple named Zacharias. Zacharias and his wife, as the Bible says, could not have children. But the angel Gabriel appears to him in his old days and he tells him, you will have a son and his name will be called John. So John, who would later grow up known as John the Baptist, would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Six months later, Gabriel, the same angel, appears to Mary in Nazareth. So she hears the news about this angel, and by faith she believes it. But as strong as her faith was, I just talked about how strong her faith was. As strong as her faith was, this is still hard to grasp. This journey is still going to be hard for her to walk through. This is a heavy weight to carry. Mary needs someone to walk with her through this. So again, come to find out, we understand Mary and Elizabeth were relative. They were cousins. Not only were they family by blood, but they were family because of their faith. Why am I saying this? Because everyone in this room may not be related biologically, but we're related by faith through the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we surrender, you're brought into the family of God. This life is hard to live. We hear the word of God preached. We read the word of God. But at the end of the day, we can be persecuted for trying to live out what we profess. There are temptations all around us that will cause us to drift away from the right track. We need people that can walk with us in this journey of life and in this journey of sanctification. That's the purpose of family devotion and small group. That's the beauty of discipleship, that moment of fellowship that opens the door for Christians to find people that are like-minded, that can walk with them in times of hardship. God allows us to cross paths with people that can carry the weight of life so we can grow in this journey of sanctification. Mary needed somebody who could understand what she was going through and walk with her through it. Another reason why we need one another is because, again, this is a dark, sinful world. No one understands the struggles of, that Christians go through except another Christian. No one understands the struggle of trying to live out what you profess unless they're the ones trying to struggle living out what they profess. So Mary heard the news, this supernatural pregnancy, and she went on a long trip to visit her cousin. Why? Because Elizabeth couldn't have children. Elizabeth was an older woman. Almost everything about Elizabeth made it impossible for her to have children. Not only was Elizabeth pregnancy impossible, but she was pregnant with someone who was also prophesied in Scripture. So she was pregnant with the son who would grow up preparing the way for the Messiah. Who better to spend time with than someone who understands completely what you're going through? Both people had experienced the impossible. The only one that would probably even believe her is someone who went through the exact same thing. That's why we need one another. I am a wretch saved by grace. No one can understand that except another wretch saved by grace. We need one another in seasons of difficulty. So my question to you, who has God placed in your life? And how often are you leaning on them? How often are you calling them? How often are you meeting with them? Is it a relative? Is it a coworker? Is it a mentee? Is it a leader in the church? Is it a small group leader? God has called all of us together to walk with one another. And I encourage you, take advantage of these moments, every moment you have. 
with that person, with those people, so you can be poured into. We need community. And then the last thing that Mary's life teaches is that we need a savior. We need community, but we ultimately need a savior. Mary spends time with Elizabeth and she begins to rejoice to the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm just going to, again, I'm going to read a couple verses from her prayer from Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 48. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I want to focus on verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary lived in a time where the Jews were under Roman authority. They were treated unfairly by the Roman emperor. They were cheated out of their money because of the taxes. They were looked down upon and talked down to. And anyone who stood up for themselves would face severe consequences. So to know that the Messiah was coming to rule the nations and would have an endless kingdom sounded like freedom. There were Jews that couldn't wait for this day because they thought that there was a rebellion getting ready to happen. Knowing that the Messiah would come sounded like freedom. He was going to take over the Roman government and rule everything for eternity. So many people thought that the Messiah would come as a savior to end social injustice. They thought that he would come to rebel against those in authority. But we find out later that everybody who looked at the Messiah this way was completely wrong. The angel Gabriel appeared not only to Mary, but later she appeared to her husband Joseph in a dream. And she said in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, she said, but as he continued these things, it says, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is the reason why he came. For he will save his people from their sins. So argument, we needed a savior because we rebelled against a holy and a righteous God. Our rebellion separated us from God, putting us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. But God loved us so much that he gave us his son, Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, was born of this virgin Mary, and from childhood to his death, Jesus, God the Son, lived in submission, obeying his parents, growing in wisdom and stature. Jesus lived on this earth as a man tempted at all points, but did not sin. He lived in submission, obeying his parents, growing up in wisdom and stature, and because he was so sinless, he faced the wrath of the Father on the cross. He died on the cross. His death on the cross was not just to free us. It wasn't just to free us from social injustice or oppression from an unjust government because those topics are important and they're weighty. But it doesn't address the root of why we needed a savior. If it was a tree, it would only cut off branches and stems and leaves. We needed the root cut. 
We needed a savior because we deserved the wrath of God for our sin. We needed someone who could take our place in judgment. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he sacrificed his life. So we wouldn't face the well-deserved wrath of the Father. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and three days later, he bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And so if you surrender your life to Jesus, receive him as the Lord of your life, you are saved from the penalty of sin. And if those sin may have influence, it will no longer have dominion. So when we look back at Mary's pregnancy, she rejoiced. She rejoiced, but she also had to prepare her heart. Because the same baby, the same baby boy she brought into this world, the same little boy that she watched grow up, the same teenager that she spent time with, she knew she would have to watch that boy grow up and suffer and die to save sinners like us. She knew she would have to endure heartbreak. In fact, after Mary gave birth, the Bible says in Matthew 2 that there were a group of magi living, in the, living far away that came to Mary. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, so they came and traveled, made their way to Mary, and they brought gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each gift represented something. Gold was a gift that represented Jesus as king. Frankincense was used to burn in the temple as an offering to God. So this was a gift that recognizes that Jesus is God, fully man, fully God. But myrrh was used to embalm the dead. Myrrh was used to embalm the dead. So this was a gift that foreshadowed the sacrificial death of Jesus. She knew the scriptures well enough to know the death of Jesus had been predicted for centuries. But when the angel appeared to her telling her this news, even while knowing that the day of suffering and heartbreak would come, Mary still says, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. What we are hearing from that statement is biblical Christmas spirit. That is what Christmas spirit looks like. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. That is the heart of Mary and that's the heart of a servant and a slave to the will of God. Where is your heart when it comes to the holidays? Where is your heart when it comes down to Christmas Day? Even when Mary gave birth, her eyes were fixed on what Jesus came to do. When she saw that little boy with those chubby cheeks running around the house, her heart was still fixed on the fact that one day that same little boy will die for my sins. Her eyes were still fixed on the mission that Jesus Christ came to fulfill. Where is your mind at this holiday season? There's nothing wrong with giving gifts, receiving gifts. There's nothing wrong with a big dinner. But all of those things are temporary. Enjoy the gifts. Have fun. But my encouragement, don't idolize those materialistic things. Don't idolize the gifts. The greatest gift we can receive is salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, those who surrendered to him have the gift, the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life that outweighs anything that you can get on Christmas Day under a tree. You have the gift of eternal life. So when things go wrong and you can't afford to get gifts, you can't afford to have a big dinner. 
you have a gift of eternal life. The reason why you'll be able to forgive your enemies on Christmas Day because you're full of the Holy Spirit, which reveals you have the gift of eternal life. Merry Christmas. You have the gift of eternal life if you're in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us the gift of eternal life. We are rebellious, sinful beings who deserve nothing but your wrath. But we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave us a gift, a gift that cannot be bought, found in stores, but it was the word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for the sinless life of Jesus. We thank you for his death, burial, and bodily resurrection. We pray that through this we remember what Christmas is about. Even if we can't afford the gifts and the things under the tree, we know that we are blessed with the gift of eternal life through the finished work of Christ. Let our eyes be fixed on what he's done and what he will do, for Jesus will return for his church. We're thankful this morning. We thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.